This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 110. For this episode, I will tell the story of the first major women's international six-day race that was held in 1879 in Madison Square Garden. The race was highly controversial and full of drama. This week I finally hung up my ultra-running shoes for good due to worn-out knees. The 50,000-mile warranty could not be renewed. My racing days may be over, but this ultra-running history podcast will continue. Pity me by signing up to be an ultra-running history patron. Give monthly support and get access to bonus episodes. Go to ultraRunningHistory.com slash member to become my partner. That's ultrarunninghistory.com slash member to become a Patreon member and help out. Will do. Now to the story of the great women's six-day race. Six, because it was never on Sunday. Many women participated in six-day races during the late 1800s. With the great publicity of the Astley Belt six-day races, the six-day race exploded into a craze in America and in Great Britain. Of the 850 total starters in 85 six-day races in 1879, more than 120 starters were women. The details of the 17 women's races held that year were fascinating, full of surprising drama, and needs to be remembered in this history, especially given the strong discriminating feelings towards women athletes in that era and for the century that followed. After the third Astley Belt race was conducted in New York City's Madison Square Garden on March 15, 1879, see episode 109, it was quickly announced that a Grand Ladies International Six-Day Race would also be held there in less than two weeks. It would be the first go-as-you-please, running aloud, six-day race for women. Yes, women would start running to the shock of the Victorian age public. Because of scheduling conflicts in the building, the race would need to span across a Sunday. At first, they were told that they would be allowed to run on Sunday. However, the police chief later decided that they would have to take a 24-hour arrest on Sunday during the race. For the first time, a women's ultra-running race would include spectacular prizes for the winner. The first place prize would be $1,000 or $28,750 value today, along with a belt similar to the Astley belt called the Walton belt, made by Tiffany valued at $250. A hefty entrance fee of $200 was required to ensure that only the most serious women pedestrians would participate. All women who reached 325 miles would get their feedback. Many women athletes expressed interest, including a number of amateur pedestrians trying to break into the sport. The same track for the third Astley Belt race would be used. Army tents were provided for each competitor, and three medical attendants would take care of them during the race. On the evening of March 27, 1879, as a promenade concert was being held, many women, accompanied by friends, carried bundles, bedding, trunks, and other possessions to the row of white tents in Madison Square Garden. 
At 11 p.m., the 18 women starters listened to the race rules that included a new rule against dogging the runner's heels ahead, a rule that wouldn't be enforced very well. The ladies were arranged in four rows and started with the word go, accompanied by music from the band and the cheers of about a thousand people. The news press was generally unfavorable about women participating in such an event. It was reported, As soon as the 18 were underway, the fun began. The crowd seemed to regard the affair much in the same farcifical light as they would a burlesque entertainment at a theater. They were a strange lot, tall and short, heavy and slim, young and middle-aged, some pretty and a few almost ugly. Here and there was a display of shapely limbs. All the dresses are short and reach but a little below the knee. Instead of being made of flannel and as simply as possible, most of them are heavy garments of velvet and many are covered with embarrassing bows and knots of ribbon. The footgear various and while some are neatly and sensibly shod with laced boots, others wore low dancing slippers which will quickly fill with sawdust and cause trouble to the wearers. The poor women had to endure laughing and insulting remarks from the crowds of men who would hang over the rails surrounding the track. Some of the women runners would blush and look down, but most would face their tormentors with brazen looks and often answer back boldly. I am strong. I am invincible. I am woman. I am woman. Exilda La Chapelle, aged 20, was born in Marseille, France, and as a child, her family moved to Canada. Both of her parents soon died, and she was raised by an uncle. She began her walking exhibitions at the young age of 13 in 1872 in Canada and later in the upper Midwest of the United States. She married at age 15, gave birth to a boy, but he died during his first year, which devastated her. In 1877, she returned to her walking career and she married again. At age 19, in 1878, being called Madame La Chapelle, she walked 336 miles from Montreal to Toronto in 100 hours. Later that year, in competition with a man, Phil Dugan Jr. of Oshkosh, Wisconsin, on a track, he hit her twice with his elbows as she tried to pass him. She gave him a good slap to the face as she left the track. She wouldn't put up with any flack. She was described as, quote, a small woman, compactly built, straight as an arrow, and possesses wonderful endurance. She is very pleasant in appearance. She walks without effort. Her best 50-mile time was accomplished in 8 hours 40 minutes, and her best 100-mile time was 25 hours 24 minutes. She recently walked 10 miles in 1 hour 43 minutes, which was thought to be a world walking record for a woman. In the six-day race, La Chapelle walked the first mile in 10 minutes 30 seconds, with a two-lap lead already. After only an hour and 3.7 miles, Marion Cameron of New York was taken out of the race by her husband because he believed she was being cheated out of laps. She also was upset that she had to share a tent with another contestant and had to disrobe in the presence of strangers. I'm out of here. La Chapelle held her lead through the entire first day. Her husband of a couple years, a doctor also from France, encouraged her to slow down. 
She quickly became a crowd favorite because of occasional sprints. Her gait was nervous and not over easy, but she showed little signs of weariness. She weighed about a hundred pounds and was dressed in blue and white with red stockings. Her arms kept vigorous time to the movement of her tough, sinewy limbs. She reached 50 miles in 10 hours, 27 minutes. As the day went on, most of the running turned into walking. By evening, there were about 2,000 spectators watching and a few women in the crowd. At the end of the day, the score was La Chapelle, 88 miles, Ada Wallace, 75, and Bella Kilbury, 73. At the beginning of day two, after midnight, all the runners looked very pale and tired. Ah! Zombies! One young runner was white as a ghost. People were speculating that the race would be a bust both financially and athletically. There were rumors that the women who held out the longest would be the most deluded. Three more women dropped out, leaving 14. Many of the starters have already failed, and those remaining are so grotesque and miserable in appearance that the boars among the spectators jeer them mercilessly, profanely, and indecently. Altogether, it is a disgraceful exhibition for everybody concerned, especially those who expect to make money out of the women's suffering. La Chapelle, with 140 miles by evening, continued to walk strongly as if she had just begun, with Bertha von Berg just 10 miles behind. She and La Chapelle were the first two in the race, and a special rivalry seemed to exist between them. Von Berg's heavy frame was evidently a handicap to her. La Chapelle used a strategy to follow Von Berg each lap closely to maintain her lead. This started to bug Von Berg. She stopped and said, If you come within six feet of me again, I'll slap you in the face. Get away from me. La Chapelle backed off after that, but she said she would, quote, wipe the floor with Von Berg's face. But Von Berg was gaining on her. Bertha Von Berg was born in Rochester, New York of German parents. Her true name was Maddie Gangross. She was a boot and shoe seamstress. She burst into the pedestrian sport in 1878 when she walked 100 miles in 27 hours. But the next month, she really impressed all by bringing her 100-mile time down to 21 hours, 36 minutes, and she started to win big money racing against men in upstate New York. She was described as a gallus creature with sleepy eyes. An observer of the six-day race wrote, Von Berg sails around the track in a delicate mauve-tinted silk. She invents her purpose in a quiet way to do or die easily. She is one of the finest figures in the procession. She is a large woman, walks with a stride and free-swinging arms, and looks as though she were possessed of great powers of endurance. Three more contestants dropped out during that day, leaving 11. The score after 48 hours was La Chapelle, 141 miles, Von Berg, 133, and Wallace, 131. In the afternoon of day three, La Chapelle, had a terrible physical strain that caused her to give up her lead to her nemesis, Von Berg. She had made a struggle to hold her own, coming out of her tent repeatedly and walking two or three laps when she should have been in bed. She soon fell into third place and took a long stop, completely exhausted. 
The new second place runner was Ada Wallace, who received applause as she jumped up the scoreboard and progressed around the track with, quote, her funny walk and still more curious style of skipping. She used a type of rope skip motion to rest her muscles. Ada Wallace was about 30 years old from Baltimore, Maryland. She was a newcomer to pedestrianism. In February 1879, she walked 100 miles in 24 hours in New Jersey. In early March, she started a walk to attempt 2,058 quarter miles in the same number of quarter hours. That's crazy. After a week, she quit because of a lack of spectators, but her judges later admit her walk was a fraud, with long rest sessions missing nearly five hours per day. During the six-day race, she was described, Wallace holds a cob in each hand like O'Leary and has high-heeled boots on. She moved with a strong stride in a purple tunic and blue stockings. She is solidly built and walks with a steady, firm step. About 1,500 enthusiastic spectators were in attendance during the evening. During the last 15 minutes of the day, Von Berg pushed very hard to reach her 199th mile before the 11 p.m. pistol was fired to mark positions for taking Sunday off. They all were then taken in carriages to a Turkish bath to rest. The score after three days was Von Berg, 199 miles, Wallace, 186, La Chapelle, 184. At 12.05 a.m. on Monday, after a day of rest, the ten remaining women continued their run. Von Berg looks ruddy and well. She was in good spirits and walked with no signs of fatigue. Wallace's cheeks were flushed, and she started off on a trot, moving easily. The plucky little Frenchwoman, La Chapelle, was a trifle pale, but she walked briefly without lameness. Her slight figure did not look able to stand the strain of another three days. Fanny Rich, a book agent from Boston, reversed her direction on the track and would not give the inside lane to the others for some reason. She looked like she was losing her balance and started to collide with the other runners. After being warned by the judges, she went to her tent, making loud charges of fraud against the scorers. I am not putting up with this anymore. Putting up with what? I I can't I am out of here. When the trainer tried to reason with her, she hit him over the head with a stick and a whip and hit respected referee Edward F. Plummer across the face. She claimed that Plummer pulled out a pistol, but he denied that. She was withdrawn from the race after 131 miles and griped about the unfair conditions she put up with compared to the other ladies. This is so unfair! The strangest highlight of the day took place at about 5.30 a.m. when a drunken man in the audience flirting with two women in a box began a cruel mocking of La Chapelle as she went around the track. (laughs) It was soon discovered that he was her husband, (gasps) William Napoleon de Rose, also of France. She chewed him out in French, and it was such an embarrassment to her that she decided to quit the race after running 207 miles. She said, I had made a pail full of money for that man, and he goes and gets drunk. Now he will have to work for his own living. 
He pleaded with her to continue to try to win the second place money. The two quickly reconciled, but La Chapelle was now irate about the race. She accused someone of trying to drug her, and she was clearly mad at Von Berg. I could gain on Von Berg any time I wanted, but she wanted to whip me three or four times. She got very mad at me. La Chapelle accused the scorers of cheating her on laps, about ten miles. The true breaking point for her was when a scorer put a stick in front of her and wouldn't let her reverse direction to follow Von Berg closely. Twelve hours later, she applied to enter the race again, but was rejected by the race management. Denied. Seven runners remained. Eva St. Clair of Tunbridge, England, had not run since the morning of Saturday, day three, and had been lying in her tent for 50 hours. She was finally taken back to her New York apartment in, quote, such a precarious state that serious doubts were entertained as to whether she would live or die. She was clearly worn out after two weeks earlier finished walking 1,250 quarter miles in the same number of quarter hours. The poor lady didn't have a cent to her name, and the next day her landlord tried to evict her, even though she couldn't even stand up. The score after day four was Von Berg, 262 miles, Wallace, 246, and Kilbury, 239. On finishing her last lap of the day, Wallace was nervous about Kilbury gaining on her and bugged by a slow scoreboard updater. She said, I'll whip that Dutch score for hanging up the wrong figure. She was also mad at Kilbury for dogging behind her. She may beat me in her mind, but she can't in her legs. Early on day five, two more women withdrew from the race, leaving only five of the original 18 starters. Von Berg continued to walk strongly with a 23-mile lead over determined 16-year-old Bella Kilbury. Bella Kilbury of Hoboken, New Jersey, was the youngest runner in the race. She began the race penniless and humorously called her training wretched. She was described as, quote, petite and fair, and altogether a lively girl dressed. There was an apprehension that she would wear herself out too soon. She is the only graceful runner in the lot, and called Dead-Eye Dick by her friends, because she had a glass eye. She wore a walking suit of blue silk, pink sash, and a quantity of silver lace and bullion fringe, renders her quite a striking object. By day five, young Kilbury looked pale and haggard, with lines on her forehead indicating suffering limping along. The doctor had urged her to leave the track that she would likely ruin her health for life if she continued. She refused and continued in her attempt to keep up with Von Berg. Of the walkers left, Kilbury attracted the most sympathy from the crowd. Some of the New York press were stunned by what they witnessed. They struggled on day after day, having no decent places to sleep. Suffering was written in every line of the face, while the steps grew slower and tottering. It was as pitiful a sight as mortals ever were invited to pay fifty cents each to look upon. The score after day five was Von Berg, 317 miles, Wallace, 296, Kilbury, 293. On day six, as the remaining women slept, it was noted, 
The spectacle was made still more disgusting by the appearance of stalwart loafers hanging around the tents where the women slept. Later in the morning, Kilbury caught up and passed Wallace into second place. After she passed Wallace, it was found necessary for one of the judges to escort her around the track for an hour to protect her from Wallace, who lavished abuse upon the young Hoboken girl, calling her the vilest epithets and threatening her with bodily harm. Kilbury quickly extended her lead by several miles. She was given constant cheers and was presented with baskets of many flowers. She draped an American flag on her shoulders and walked around beating a kettle drum. Later, as things calmed down, all five women marched together to the music of Yankee Doodle. As the race ended at 11 p.m., the three podium winners, Von Berg, Kilbury, and Wallace, finished together as about 3,000 people cheered them on. The final score was Von Berg with a new world record of 372 miles Kilbury 351 miles, and Wallace 336. Von Berg was proclaimed the, quote, champion long-distance female walker of the world, and received the Watson belt, which was made of maroon velvet and included four square plates of silver. Vero Ferrand, a 53-year-old gray-haired veteran ballet dancer turned runner, had been paid off with $10 to quit after she grew ill. She had been bobbing around painfully with a sore knee. When requested to withdraw, her eyes filled with tears and she begged to be permitted to keep on. Well, after the finish, she was finally taken to Bellevue Hospital by ambulance after suffering from chills and fever for 36 hours. She would recover and go on to resume her ballet career until at least 1888, at the age of 63. Criticism about the women's race flooded in many newspapers, much of it unfair against women, but some also pointing out the strange drama that took place nearly every day. It painted a picture of crude women parading around, flirting with men in an environment that encouraged the worst dregs of society to act vulgarly in display of the public. The characterizations were clearly affected by bias against letting women participate in such a sport. In Indiana, it was commented, The five who persevered were not a lovely spectacle as they crawled around the ring. Their hair had not been fixed for half a week. Their faces had not been washed, and some of them had not changed their clothes for five days. To make a long and unpleasant story short, this show of disreputable women and shiftless loafers is over. It was clear that many of the women were undertrained who should not have been allowed to compete. They pushed beyond their ability of endurance either by themselves or by their backers. A week later, likely a false rumor circulated that one of the women had died. Brooklyn proclaimed, Pedestrianism is a noble and healthful exercise when it is devoted to the right ends, but such a vile exhibition as that which had just closed is totally devoid of any elevating influences. It is high time that something was done to stop these loose women from making themselves conspicuous. Let us go along in the old way, walking when we must, but never utterly abandoning streetcars and stages. 
in Massachusetts. The scene was fearfully brutal. Many of the worst passions were excited, and the corrupting disgrace ought to be stopped. Charges of brutality were emphasized in Brooklyn. Some of the walkers walked as many as 25 miles without eating, not having means to buy food, and the majority of the contestants walked against disadvantages which men would die under. Help is needed for pedestrians of the weaker sex, who will do whatever they choose and will imitate men in everything that offers remuneration. In Illinois, the show of women walkers ended in a manner that ought to cause the managers of the spectacle to be held up to public execration. There ought to be a law in every state making it a penal offense to carry on and manage such a show. Some New Yorkers started putting pressure on city officials to refuse to grant licenses to similar future events. While fair or not, most of the public was left with an impression that the race was, quote, public torture of women. Negative feelings against women pedestrianism were expressed worldwide. England published this statement. Women is not physically organized for a six-day tramp, and it is a shame to allow her to abuse herself. But it wasn't the end of the women's six-day race. Just four months later, another race would be held in San Francisco, California, and a massive women's race would return to New York City by the end of the year. Stay tuned for more six-day race history. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances. <laughs>